I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. This is Kate. So we're so excited to be introducing part two of the Zach Bush podcast interview series. Show. show. We did not know we were going to be doing a part two when we did the first interview. (laughs) However, based on some feedback from our community, we felt it was necessary or an opportunity for repair. And I'll tell you why. The first episode that was aired, overwhelmingly, it has been downloaded the most times of all episodes ever on the Kate and Mike show. And it's only been out about a week at the time of recording this. So that show is going bananas. A lot of people are loving it. A lot of people are sharing it. And some people had some critical feedback, which was really important. So Mm -hmm. Mike and I are always wanting to learn and grow and do better. And one of the pieces of feedback that we received several times, which I knew was correct, was that when we asked Dr. Bush the question about COVID and race and the disproportionate way that COVID is affecting the Black population, that that we did not go deep enough with that answer. And even though in the moment I wanted to interrupt Dr. Bush and challenge him on it, I did not, which is on me. So I take responsibility for that. Now, making an error in public, you know, as Erica Hines says, be humble and ready to fumble. It's so true, right? Like, it's deeply uncomfortable to be like, oh, wow, like, this is a mistake. And I made it in public. And I think at least the only way I know how to deal with it is to admit it and say, okay, I'm learning and I'm committed to doing better. And how can I move towards repair? So luckily when we reached out to Zach, he was willing to have a second conversation because he also felt it was an incredibly important issue. So he was willing to come back and go deeper. And so that's what this episode is about, specifically the It's just some fascinating stuff about the way that air quality affects different people based specifically on their different nutrient levels. There's, I won't get into it because he's going to explain it, but that's what this episode is about. And also equitable solutions towards our collective health that are accessible for all of us. Why are you laughing? It's true. Yeah. I also want to say- Can I say something? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. The other guy is going to talk, say something. I would say the same thing. You know, it's like, I don't want to make with the first episode, you know, some of the feedback that came in regarding of how we handled the situation, which completely agree with, you know, and, and I know when we got off the podcast, it's like immediately I was like, oh boy, we didn't handle that correctly. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to make excuses, you know, cause we are interviewing people, but there is something I'll just tell you what's for me, like when I am interviewing Zach and being in this situation, it's actually been one of the most challenging interviews that I have done since we've been doing this for over four years and that I've ever interviewed somebody just because of the, as the listeners of the Kate Mike show know that Mike has trouble pronouncing words, right? Like he has a very big vocabulary, right? And so sometimes if I am not understanding what someone is saying, and especially the way Zach delivers his message, he could say something in the first 30 seconds and then talk for three minutes straight, but I'm still like 
lost in the first 30 seconds. So it's just a, it's a good learning lesson of preparation when you are prepping for guests, at least for me, it's like, because I've listened to so much of his content before, it would be for myself to prepare a little bit differently than I would, would for other people when it comes to actually interviewing people. So yeah, and I'm really grateful that he gave us the time to have this interview again and have a part two follow up. And he was really grateful for that as well before, you know, and he addresses that right in the beginning on the podcast. So also, I want to say that this is true of all guests who have ever been on the Kate and Mike show. The thoughts and perspectives and beliefs and viewpoints of our guests do not necessarily indicate Mike and my beliefs and thoughts and perspectives. I think that's obvious, but based on some of the based on some of the comments we got about the first episode, I realized we actually did need to explicitly state that. Yeah, it's really important to be in conversation with people that we don't necessarily agree on Mm -hmm. everything. Agreed. I think it's very important to have people that have different perspectives because then you're stuck in a silo. Exactly. And then you're just listening to the same people say the same thing all the time and agree with your beliefs. So. Yeah, I mean, this episode was big. Like part one was very, it was, it was, there was a lot of downloads, you know, versus what we're used to on this show. And there was a lot of great feedback that came from it. And there was definitely some great critiques and criticism. So we hear them. We're working on improving that for the future. And uh, yeah, do you want to talk about anything else? No, I think let's just go ahead and get into it. I agree. Enjoy Zach Bush part two. All right. Welcome back, Zach. Thanks for being here with us. So glad to be with you too. So as we set up a little bit in the intro, this is a follow-up conversation because while we had some incredible feedback around the episode the first time, we also had some questions and some pushback, which I think was incredibly valuable. It opened my eyes and helped me reflect on not only my own lens, but also some of my own blind spots and also in full transparency, which I've said on, you know, on my Instagram. So it's already fully transparent, just like the desire to push back and how I didn't and just kind of looking at what's that about. So anyway, thank you for being here. And before we started recording, you just said something which I'm hoping you can sort of repeat about how important it is to listen to each other. So do you mind sort of paraphrasing? Yeah, I think, you know, all of us are in such a a high content consumption pace these days. And so when we're consuming content at a really high rate, we tend to... um, resonate with a certain set of content and when we resonate with it and you know the majority of people to one of my social posts or to your podcasts you know are going to really resonate with the content well and some of it may raise some questions and all that but majority that's going to be kind of almost your silent choir right they're they're the ones that are resonating to it enjoying the content feeling reassured by the content feeling reinforced in their own intuition about different aspects by and large, every time I've spoken, either in public or via social media or whatever, the most common feedback I get is, oh my gosh, my mind is blown and I already knew all that stuff. And that's the exciting thing is that if I'm doing anything different than anybody else, I'm just 
vocalizing the dots that are again connecting the dots that people already know. People know the fundamentals of everything that I've discussed, whether it's biochemistry, cell biology, soil health, food health, even all the way to the social injustice stuff, all that, that whole spectrum, everybody kind of knows all these pieces intuitively or subconsciously almost. And then you call them out and you put them into a certain order. It's going to resonate with a certain number of people. Maybe that's the majority, maybe it's not. But the ones that are most exciting to me are the ones that it doesn't resonate with because that's where we all get to learn. And that's where we really get to expand our wisdom and dig deeper into the biases that are inherent in all of us. And our biases are obviously you know, entrenched in ancestral patterns and religious and belief systems, but it's actually really entrenched in the neurology. And so when you look at these neuroscience experiments, they show that things like racial bias, which is different than racism, but has a similar outcome, racial bias is programmed into every single American brain, whether you're studying an African-American, a Hispanic, a woman, a male, we tend to have the same biases at this, that subconscious level. And so if you're flashing you know, subconscious images at you know, a number of subjects across that wide spectrum of, of heterogeneity, they have a very similar you know, response. And so the same race bias that you'll see in a white person responding to images of black people, black people will have the same response seeing images of black people. And that's the programming that we need to free ourselves from, which is complicated because that's neurochemistry. It's not like somebody's social agenda. That's literally a neurochemistry behavior that's programmed in there. And so we have to, just as you would break an addiction to a drug, we need to break our neuro response to humanity. And I think we need to do that through biologic lexicon. We need to learn a new way of communicating with one another. And we're not going to learn that unless we listen. And that's yeah, and unless we address the people who are the in response to the first episode, the louder minority saying like, hey, like, what about this? And what about that? And so thank you for showing up for this. And Mike, do you want to just mention the course you took with Anu because it's related to this? Yeah, so we had a new Gupta on our podcast and he taught he's actually spent like 15 years teaching how to break the course i took was about breaking racial bias and he also has a course about the bias inside the medical system which we'll talk about here in a second but just it's science-backed proof that like in four weeks you can start breaking your bias around the program that's happened and i had a quite a it's very it's a deep course that i went through with a new because it's, you're in there, there was 32 people, everybody, you know, we all looked, we were completely different the way we looked and he dove into like caste systems and racism and all of these things that we are programmed with. We broke down smaller groups and just amazing how you start to, how similar we are in views and all exactly what you just described, Zach, like just how the programming is there, regardless of what we actually look like. Because mm-hmm. brains are brains. Right. Yeah. Brains are brains and the environment is powerful is the interesting thing. Our brains are shaped by the environment, which I continue to marvel at. I continue to marvel that there is no real normal for the brain. If your brain is, you know, has all those same genetics of, you know, really not just other humans, but even monkeys or pigs, like our brains are so damn similar. 
across the board, 99.9%. And yet we can think such different things. We can experience such different things. We can have this and, and to realize that the environment, and when I say the environment, it's literally the sunshine. I don't know if, you know, if, if you've had the blessing of traveling in your life as you're listening to this, if you've been to high northern environment like Iceland or up around the, the Arctic Circle, the light there, characteristics of sunlight in Iceland are something I've never experienced anywhere else in the world. And I really believe that the way in which that sun trajects through the atmosphere at a very steep angle because of that high northern latitude, your brain is going to be programmed differently for that. Color looks different there. And, you know, color is something that we have to understand as a subjective description. It's not a biologic fact. A rose is not red. A rose is, simply has a vibration in space and time that reflects sunlight at a certain frequency and has no quality to it that would call it red or a color at all until it hits the retina of the eye. Then the retina and its interaction with the brain will create another frequency experience and then we label that as red and we keep teaching kids, no, that's red, that's red, that's red. And until they've been experienced that frequency over and over again and told it's red, there is no, no redness to the rose. And so it, it's very fascinating to imagine that what somebody born and raised in Iceland sees a rose as is subtly different than mm -hmm. what I see a rose as because of the frequency differences between the way in which light resonates through the atmosphere, hits the rose, bounces back to the eye, all of these complicated things. And so that's kind of a very concrete single example. But then you imagine all the other layers of the bacteria obviously being vastly different in the air and soil systems of Iceland than in Boulder, Colorado, where I was born. And so it's, there's no way that my neurochemistry can respond the same way because I don't have the same bacteria that are feeding back on my gut membrane. And we now know that there's specific bacteria that interact with the enteric endocrine system of our gut to program how much dopamine, serotonin, and which ratios we, we make these neurotransmitters. And so my experience is going to be determined by the ecosystem in which I live. And that ecosystem is within me, it's around me, it's over, all over me, and it's humanity itself. And if we don't have the right feedback systems, if we're not sensitive to all the feedback from humanity as a whole, we become isolated in our perspective, we can become biased in our, in our behavior and in our belief systems. And so it's exciting that the solution, anytime we hear white privilege or racism or race bias or any of these concepts, but I would even go as far as anytime you have any subjective sensory input, you know, this music is great, this piece of art is beautiful. You have to realize that you're having a subjective experience that, that is the result of a very limited Umfeld is the German word. It's a cool word that describes your reality is, is only by your perspective. And so your Umfeld of the rose is vastly different than a bee. A bee sees no red rose. A bee doesn't even see a structure of the flower like you see it. And so the Umfeld of the bee or the bat is vastly different, obviously. They're seeing echo vibrations and they're seeing you know, three-dimensional structures that you can't perceive they're seeing infrared signal for, you know, kilometers away. They can see a, a patch of flowers, you know, far over the horizon. And so they can do those kinds of things through infrared signaling and all these other cool mechanisms of sensory processing. And so whether we're looking at a single species and our minor variations or the world as a whole, we're not going to get the full picture because we're of our limited umfeld, our, our limited perspective, our limited reality. And so that's what I love about this follow-up conversation is too often I'm asked to go speak and I speak from my umfeld 
And nobody has the ability to answer back and to ask the harder questions of like, well, for my own belt, that doesn't make sense. Like, or it seems to conflict with what I'm seeing over here. And until we get the opportunity to follow up on those, we have a limited perspective. So I'm so grateful for the opportunity to enrich the audience with the audience's perspectives. Yeah, totally. Mm. And I did sort of crowdsource. These questions are an amalgamation of crowdsourcing from our disgruntled minority. So (laughs) just so you know, that's where they're coming from. And P.S. Thank you for that new word. And it makes me think about when you love to listen to jam bands really loud in your car and I get in the car. (laughs) It's just like, that is not from my own self. That is not pleasurable. So it's a, that's how that plays out in our life. Okay. There's Kate's talking to me, listeners, not Zach. Oh, yeah. I've Always. never ridden in Zach's car no. or listened to Jack <laughs> with him, but who knows? <laughs> She's looking at me talking to me when that was happening. One never knows. Okay. So the first question is, when we talked about the disparity in the way COVID is affecting specifically the Black community in the United States in our previous interview, just as an example for listeners who may not be aware of this, adjusted for age, a Black person is 3.6 times as likely to die with COVID than a white person. The source for that is linked in the show notes. You mentioned that that the disparity was likely due in part to the increased PM 2.5 in the inner city locations near to industry and other sources of pollution. But I'd like to go deeper, especially because like in a state like Maine, where we live, that has the cleanest air in the United States, which we're very proud of, we recently realized that, on our population, well, because based on listening to you, we started thinking about like, where should we spend the winter somewhere warm. And then we were like, well, we should look up where has the cleanest air in the United States. And then we were out to dinner and we searched and we were like, oh, it's Maine. Oh, we're already here. <laughs> so anyway. That was one article on Google. So yeah, well, not, I don't know. Zach anyway. could probably tell us if we're accurate. All that to say back to my question, our population in the state of Maine is about 95% white. However, 25% of our COVID cases have been in Black people, and we are said to have the widest coronavirus racial disparity gap in the country. So with all of that said, what do we need to be considering beyond where people live and their socioeconomic status, though obviously that's a huge factor, when it comes to race and immunity? And well, then there's so much more to this question, but let's start there and then I can ask more. Yeah, very good. The, the reason why I enjoy the you know distillation to the air pollution as as a metric is because it actually is a downstream effect of almost everything else that is a risk factor for this race bias in in disease prevalence and you know disease outcomes and all of that. When you start to see an area of high PM two point five, you know you've had a breakdown of the larger ecosystem around it, and so you have a deficit of healthy soil systems, you have a deficit of healthy water systems, and you have a choked air system, basically. And so as you start to see that, you start to, you know, have an, a metric sort of like blood pressure. Many different things can elevate your blood pressure, stress in the home, stress at work, your nutrition, poor access to sunlight, bad exercise you know, program. And so when I say blood pressure is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, that's actually, it's a marker for, you know, many risk factors that then contribute to it. And so in the same way, PM 2.5, it would be very erroneous to think, oh, that's our only risk factor for COVID. Instead, it's a metric for all of the risk factors that would then culminate towards that dysfunction of the greater ecosystems of soil, water, and air. 
And so from a macro thinking, macro system standpoint, if we look at metrics within the soil, water, and air system, we're going to get the culminating metrics rather than single risk factors. And therefore, we're going to make better predictions of public health outcomes at that scale. And, you know, this is, you know, seen for many different reasons in micro environments too. And so you think, okay, well, Maine's got really clean air. Well, that's only if you look at Maine and the municipal systems and compare that to what's happening in New York City. But what it's not taking into consideration is the PM 2.5 levels that happen in Maine seasonally. And so you're going to reach, you know, these peak levels of PM 2.5, no matter how clean, quote unquote, your air is, come the third week of November, Maine is bright red and come middle of March, it looks like, you know, a holocaust in the air when you're looking at NASA satellite images of, of carbon. And so I've got an upcoming podcast that I think should be, well, it's not a podcast, it's like a live town hall that I'm going to record and it'll be accessed on my website if you want to go to this and I'll show you the real-time NASA satellite imaging in that that shows you just how ridiculous things get in the northern hemisphere especially in the northern parts of the United States so Seattle all the way through Maine is a torrent of carbon come you know December getting much worse through March and then not really clearing until June July and so that reality happens every year in Maine and other environments. So that, that's just a reality. The air, water, and soil systems are broken so fundamentally now across the world that we have this phenomenon. We call it flu season, but really it's carbon season. So it, it, we have this, this high toxicity that leads to abnormal relationships to bacteria and viruses and other things that then Can you lead to... why carbon is higher starting the third week of November? We've heard you talk about it, but I don't think we talked about yeah. it in the last year. Yeah, the reason this phenomenon happens so consistently is because of the seasonality of the soil. And so as fall sets in, two events happen. Number one, the respiratory capacity or metabolic capacity of the soil systems goes into its dormant state. And so you have a fall winter kind of phenomenon happening at the soil level, but you also have decomposition. And so you have a huge amount of CO2 and methane and other carbon particulate that's coming off of the decomposing materials. That shouldn't be a problem if your southern hemisphere is breathing, but if when your southern hemisphere is, is in summertime. But I think we've fundamentally broken the respiratory cycle of the planet, and we don't have enough arable breathing land in the southern hemisphere to address the northern hemisphere production. And obviously, if you look at Western civilization and, and the majority of the carbon content, it's China, United States, Europe, and you know parts of northern Russia. And so the majority of carbon from human behavior is on in the northern hemisphere. And we probably were mitigating that through southern hemisphere climate shift where we had you know vibrant summertime happening during the months of November to March and, and absorbing all that material. But as we break that respiratory cycle and we get poor airflow across the southern hemisphere or circulation, we, we accumulate that carbon in the northern hemispheres. So you know, as we dive deeper into your questions, which is like, there seems to be other risk factors in Maine. Like if it's not just air quality and air quality, I think still remains a very viable metric for the health of the planet, the health of the macro environment. But down at the home level, this can happen a lot. And so what we see in Africa is a good example, or South America is some of these remote villages that have, you know, no transportation, uh, no, no, there's no Exxon next door. You know, this is like, you're looking at Patagonia, you know, you're down in Patagonia, Peru, and you see high mortality rates in some of these villages. 
And the reasons are because the PM 2.5 and air pollution issues are happening at the micro level, which means that they're cooking with kerosene or heating with kerosene in the home. And so because of that, that dirty fuel source being their primary source and poorly vented, they can end up with really high PM 2.5 in the six foot region around their stove or their heater. And so they now are at a very high propensity for respiratory disease or uh, disorder in those winter months when their heater is cranking along. And so it doesn't take, you know, macro ecosystem disruption to cause problems. So air quality is real. No matter where we are, it's always going to play a big role in respiratory conditions and our mortality from it. But it goes much deeper than that. And just like blood pressure being a marker for many different risk factors, one of the main risk factors of vascular dysfunction that would give you mortality from anything from cardiovascular, diabetes, obesity, kidney disease, all the way to COVID is going to be your food. And so when we create food deserts, and we do this both in rural environments and urban environments now, and you know when we go through Kansas with our nonprofit and visit farm after farm, the vast majority of those farms that are literally growing you know, 3,000 to 10,000 acres of, of produce, or what you would think would be produce, it's actually corn or soybean, which doesn't turn into food for humans. They don't actually have a family garden because they're so busy tending almost alone 3,000 acres of land. And so they're rushing around growing commodity crops for the oil industry or whatever it is, and they're eating Totino's pizzas. And so they're pulling out the frozen pizza out of the freezer and they're eating this. And so 3,000 acres of farmland and they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And so we find this devastating reality of, of food deserts in the middle of Kansas, which is our most agricultural land in, in the world. 90% of Kansas is covered in farmland and yet they have to import 90% of their food. So this is the disparity that leads to disorders of disease in these rural environments. In the same way, if you've ever been in an inner city urban environment, we create micro food deserts, you know, and we do this, you know, largely out of, you know, I think social disparities really, you know, because they don't have time because they're working two jobs, jump on the train and go over to Whole Foods, you know, that's only 10 minute train ride away. They don't do it because they're rushing to do the two jobs to get the paychecks done and they're behind the eight ball yeah, and so Whole Foods is in like a loop as possible. And so you've got this, this reality of, you know, these social disparities that despite the proximity of food in something like New York or Maine, I'm sure you still get these food deserts, these micro food deserts that keep people isolated away from nutrients. And so we know that food nutrient deficiency and increased toxicity of those foods and some of them that worry me you know, around something like COVID or other conditions where we're saying these cascades of inflammation rather than a virus causing disorder and disease are the stimulants. And so there's a lot of cellular stimulants in processed food, things like MSG and these things affect neurotransmitters, but they also affect downstream you know, excitatory compounds that can fuel this inflammatory cascade that can lead to disorder or disease after exposure to a virus. And so, you know, ultimately food disparity is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle when you look across that. And, you know, deeper than that is, you know, our interaction with the environment again at at the solar level, which really gets interesting to think about. The reason why we've developed, you know, large people groups throughout the world with dark skin pigment is because of solar radiation. And so with chronic long-term solar radiation, the skin develops a high melanocyte expression and that melanin creates the, the sun shield against tropical environments. You then take those people that, you know, developed over 200,000 years with their relationship with their sun, and then you suddenly put them in a northern climate through a slave trade 
from Africa to northern climates, you've now created a completely abnormal relationship to the sun for mm -hmm. that population. And one of the main things that happens when dark pigmented skin gets hit by sun is, is that it has less vitamin D you know, activation because of the high melanin expression. And vitamin D is one of the, the only things that you cannot get from your food that's vital to your immune system. It has to come from the sun and the skin exposure. We have a lot of vitamin D deficiency throughout all ethnicities in northern climates now. And so it doesn't matter if you're Caucasian or African-American, you're going to be vitamin D deficient on some level. But the darker your skin, the more likely you are to have a severe vitamin D deficiency. And in COVID, there was few markers more remarkable than vitamin D levels and, and outcomes. And so the lower your vitamin D level, the more toxic uh, the environment becomes to you as your immune system becomes unsupported by that critical steroid. The, it's important to remember that, that vitamin D is a steroid hormone. It's not a vitamin. It's, it's been called a vitamin because we didn't really understand it back in the day, but it's actually a steroid hormone, very similar to testosterone and estrogen. And when you lose that steroid, you're losing an anti-inflammatory effect. You're losing you know, immune regulatory functions. Vitamin D is now mapped to over 2,000 different genes that it turns on and regulates. So that's a full 10% of the human genome. We only have 20,000 genes. So 10% of the human genome is regulated second to second by vitamin D levels, and you suddenly become deficient, especially if you're African-American living in a high northern climate. You're very prone to this. There's other really frightening things when we look at other diseases outside of the viruses. If we take a look at autism, for example, our African-Americans in this study that was exposed you know, through the film Vaxxed, which was a whistleblower that came out of the CDC to explain how they had scrubbed the data looking at the correlation between the MMR vaccine and, and autism, the way in which they achieved statistically insignificant rise. And, and when they finally published this study in 2005, they were supposed to publish it in 2002, took them three years to, actually it was four years to scrub the data until they could find a rise, but not statistically significant rise in autism with MMR. The way in which they had to do that is they had to eliminate all counties with African-American children in the school system because there was such a high prevalence of the autism injury after MMR for that population. And so they, they did something that's statistically and scientifically illegal is they changed the inclusion criteria and instead of considering all of the, the counties in Georgia that were initially in the study, they clipped it out until they found the high socioeconomic white enclaves within that sector and said, well, yes, there's a slight rise in, in autism, but it's not statistically significant. That slight rise was actually big, it was 70% rise. But in the African-American population, it was 800% rise. But because of the way the study was finally published, they were able to, to make a 70% rise in risk look like a non-significant outcome statistically. When you say they, who are they who scrub? CDC. Okay. This was the Centers of Disease Control that we're doing. We're being paid by the U.S. government to do this study. And remember, the CDC is not a governmental. It's a, it's a private entity that's paid by the U.S. government to do what they do. And so it, it's a private organization that we as taxpayers employ to try to, to you know, protect us, apparently. Anyway, so, you know, what was shown there is this huge prevalence, an 800% increase in, in autism in African-Americans. And it was a brilliant father of an autistic child that drilled down on this and, and shared the data with me that just blew my mind that this was coming from a father with no science background. But, you know, if you've ever gone to an autism conference, regardless of what your position in the world is, I recommend all of you find an autism conference to go to. Autism One is the largest. It's typically up in Chicago, but they move around a bit now. I would say, you know, the 
any of the other ones in some ways have a different vibe that I really like better. Autism One is pretty intense environment where there's so many lectures. There's like seven or 10 lectures going on at any every hour. So you don't really know where to spread your time. But look up maybe uh, Talk as a good resource, which is uh, a group, uh, Autism Mothers running Taka and get to one of these events because I don't think you can actually understand human health or sociopolitics until you arrive in one of these spaces because you are looking at a very interesting cross-section. You'll see every walk of life there. You'll see you know, all minorities represented. You'll see a, a lot of high net worth people there. You'll see a lot of low socioeconomic income people there trying to find the answers because healthcare is not giving the answers. There is no you know, reassurance or pathway laid out by the doctor or pediatrician. So these parents have to find each other. And there's something amazing when you find people who have self-taught and have explored a single subject to the tune of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of parents spending years and years and years of every waking moment that's free researching the hell out of this topic. So they know this better as a community than any scientist in the world knows autism. And so I've found it one of the most enriching experiences of my life scientifically, but I also love being around autistic children and you know, the children that attend these things will teach you much about your umfeld and how limited it is these children have a perspective and a perception of the world around you that you're missing and they can see beauty that you cannot see and they can see chaos and terror that you cannot see or you've become conditioned to and so it's a i think important thing for all of us to you know certainly become aware of race race bias but I think when you hang out with autistic children is when you start to get away from your neuro biases. The neurochemistry of an autistic child cannot be programmed the same as the rest of us. And so the reason why I think we're going to have one in three children with autism by 2035 is maybe because we actually need that level of crisis. We need that level of deprogramming. When we find out really how to support the health of those children to the point where they become really productive you know, members of society, despite their neuro differences, they will create a different society. They'll create a different environment and they'll create a different interaction with their environment than any of uh, a quote unquote neuronormal could have because the neuronormals have been programmed and programmed hard. And so the autistic child who can't be programmed the same way is maybe our, maybe our freedom. Maybe that's the path we have to follow is we need to follow our autistic children to a different relationship with Mother Earth. So those are some ideas around that, but I'm, that was a huge aside getting at this environmental factor this father pointed out to me was that African-Americans with dark skin pigment have low vitamin D, which increases a hormone called PTH. And I knew all of that. I was an endocrinologist, knew parathyroid hormone. What nobody had ever told me was that parathyroid hormone, when elevated especially, traffics toxins into the cell, specifically metals. And so it's very good at trafficking aluminum into the brain, for example. And so how does a, an African-American fare you know, 25 times worse or eight times worse or three times worse, depending on what diseases you look at, or 800 times worse with autism, how does it, it's because the same air that I breathe with a high vitamin D level, low PTH, poisons my brain at a certain level. But standing next to me, my good friend with you know, dark pigmented skin of any variety is going to breathe the same air and have a completely different toxin delivery. And so that's a frightening possibility that we've created a genocide level effect on the planet that preferences fairer skin. And that's a terrifying possibility is that we have poisoned the planet specifically 
and maybe entirely unintentionally or maybe not, I have no idea, but irrelevant. The reality is we need to figure out how to support the health of darker pigmented skin people that have been forced or you know now selectively living in these northern climates. So how do we do that? There's a, you know, a couple of ways in which we can do that. And so, you know, number one, the simplest way is, is to educate. And so, you know, I say that simple education is not simple. Education is maybe one of the most difficult things we do, but awareness is, is powerful. So if we just moved into African-American communities throughout New York, you know, Maine, wherever in these northern climates cities are and say, we need to make sure that everybody's vitamin D level is above 35 by November. And if we do that every year, we're going to have dramatically less respiratory disease. And so that's really all we would have to do is say, we need your vitamin D level up. And then we need to help them understand how they're going to get that vitamin D. And there's a social programming around outdoor exposure in African-American communities that is interesting. I've heard this spoken of brilliantly by a lot of African-American leaders. And there was actually a woman who was just recently on the Rich Roll podcast. I'm spacing on her name. I feel bad. I'm so bad with names, but she's a, a, yeah, she's a, a long distance runner on Rich Roll, African-American. She speaks really you know, brilliantly about why she's typically the only African-American on the trails that she runs, you know, these long distance, you know, trips. And she describes the reactions of all of these, you know, white hikers and white long distance runners to her when they see her, because she's, she looks a little overweight. She's one of the most fit people on the planet, but she, when you first lay eyes on her, she looks a little overweight and she, she gets these bizarre reactions. Like, how did you get here? And she, yeah. she's like, well, I walked the trail just like you did, or I ran the trail just like you did. Like people assume she helicoptered in or something like that. Like she's just so out of place. And she speaks to what are some of the social programming around that and why, why African-Americans, you know, feel maybe subconsciously that being outdoors is not a luxury, is not a, something to be gone after as a you know, pursuit of, of luxury or, you know, a hobby or whatever it is. And that is entrenched in that kind of slave-like experience where, you know, when forced to be outside and doing physical labor and be out in the hot sun, there's a, a sense that air conditioning and indoor environments are the luxury. And so the idea of like going out and sweating your ass off for a seven-hour hike doesn't make sense to the subconscious program that this is luxury over here. You need to be, you know, in your home with air conditioning and that's your luxury. I was uh, talking to a woman I know named Adele Jackson Gibson, and she's a journalist and she happens to be a black woman. And she was saying something very similar, which is like wondering about even with farming and, you know, you know more about farmers and farming than I do, that she was wondering about just like, how does intergenerational trauma and what's passed down in our cellular memory, you know, she was like, as a black woman, like, I wonder, you know, maybe my folks are not wanting to farm because we were forced to for generations. Right. And so that was that other piece that, you know, she, and she was just talking about the stories, you know, the stories that we all tell ourselves about our bodies. And then the story that the mainstream narrative tells us about our bodies and like, Anyway, that's a whole other conversation, and she and I. No, it's it's similar. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and that's been definitely well described in the agricultural world. That slavery bias is definitely there, and has made it difficult for multi generational African American farms to stay in business. Black owned farms tend to to have a lack of succession, especially between the 1970s and today. The last 40 years has just decimated the next in line succession planning for those farms. 
Peter Bick's Carbon Cowboys follows an incredible father-son journey with the son having left the farm early life and ultimately deciding to come back to it in his 40s to help his father out and ultimately to take over the family farm. And it's such an emotional journey watching this, you know, young, pre-middle-aged African-American male coming to terms with all of that. He has to come to terms with slavery. He has to come to terms with, you know, the forced labor that happened after, you know, with the tenant farms and, and, you know, all kinds of different financial mechanisms that were put in place to continue to force, you know, labor at an extractive level, despite the, the shift from slavery. And so it's a huge complicated issue around, you know, food supply and all of that. And it, it extends all the way into those inner city urban environments. So, you know, to continue the answer, how do we help mitigate this November, which is my interest. I want to put into place changes that will mitigate the risk of COVID or influenza or whatever is going to happen within the next three months. And, and education is number one. And so high vitamin D level be, can be achieved by helping African-Americans understand why they're going to get outside and, and why they're going to see that sun exposure to increase their health. And so it's, it doesn't take long, you know, somewhere around, you know, the darker your pigment of skin, the longer you're going to stay outside, but somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes for a dark pigmented skin, whether it be Hispanic or African-American or otherwise, you're going to be 30 to 60 minutes in the sun between kind of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. during these summer, early fall months. By the time we hit the solar winter, it's very hard to get enough vitamin D. And so that's where supplementation becomes a short-term solution. And so we typically will, especially for an African-American community, look at 5,000 international units of vitamin D daily as a go-to for immune support, as well as you know, to reduce the amount of toxin you're absorbing in your bloodstream and everything else because of that high parathyroid hormone and the rest. So high vitamin D intake, and then nutrient, 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 right? And so right after education around vitamin D comes education around food. And so I'm working to try to mobilize a philanthropic fund to scale up these portable regenerative growing systems that we can put adjacent to food banks throughout the country and put them in the, the 20 most heavy hit cities and neighborhoods with COVID, put these regenerative food systems in there so that they can understand, you know, see the solution as, as a farm rather than a pharmacy. And that's an exciting, you know, educational tool as well as a, a real public health impact of getting nutrient dense foods. And th these systems are pretty amazing. You can, you can harvest your first harvest within six to seven weeks of putting it on a parking lot. And so you take an old parking lot, install the growing system. Seven weeks later, you have your first harvest. By, by 10 weeks in, you're in your third harvest of cabbages, kales, beets, you know, all of these critical nutrient delivery systems to improve immune system function. And of course, you're talking about affecting obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all the risk factors for COVID through that nutrient-dense foods. So those are some of the programs that I'm, you know, currently working on scaling up and, and you know, trying to get national attention to, you know, and obviously when we're talking COVID, all the deaths happy elderly for the most part, you're 75 and above. And that's why the food banks are important is because so many of our elderly rely on food banks. And unfortunately, you know, almost every socioeconomic and age group is now dependent on these more than you would like to know. There's six major food banks in the LA area. There's many more than that, but there's six big ones. And the first place we put, saw one of these food systems installed, and this is Eric Cutter's work. Eric is a farmer in Los Angeles, and he built the first growing system, you know, and installed on a parking lot uh, this past spring. Bank of America, the CEO there, progressive thinker, came up with the announcement that regenerative food in 
interagency environments was a public health emergency for COVID outcomes. And they put a bunch of emergency funding behind regenerative food systems. So Eric got a mere $150,000, which is a tiny bit of the total money. And he mobilized that immediately, had his first crop with his food bank in six weeks. And that food bank at the beginning of COVID was feeding every month 250,000 families in LA. By the end of you know the summer, over 500,000 families were relying on that food bank because of the devastation of the economy through COVID. And so imagine half a million times six, and those are just a handful of the, the LA food system. And you realize, wow, we are really literally starving. Our people are starving and we are not feeding the world. We can't even feed ourselves in this country. And we're relying on emergency rations, emergency food systems for daily food for a quarter million people out of that one Irvine food-based system before COVID happened. And so uh, it's a real warning to us that we have fundamentally destroyed our relationship with Mother Earth when it comes to food. And we have these extremely long supply chains. We have extremely, you know, divorced. We are all extremely divorced from the spiritual and energetic capacity of planet Earth through all this packaged food and all of this. You know, you'll see things inter- circulating on Instagram and stuff like that, pictures of bananas that are you know, on a styrofoam thing wrapped in plastic. You know, it turns out a banana has a fully compostable packaging system that was developed over billions of years. But we feel the need to then go beyond that, put it on a piece of styrofoam wrapped in plastic to deliver a single banana. And so, you know, this is the kind of mindset that is emblematic of our entire relationship to food, which is we get further and further and further away from not just the source of it, the spirituality of a banana. Like, you know, you're not connected to anything important by the time you get to a plastic wrap banana. It's just, you're, you're not going to get health out of that thing. And so we need to bring food systems to a micro distributed space. And, you know, I, I have a real desire to see this happen. You know, my daughter lives right across the street from one of the projects in New York City that was most heavily hit by COVID and this incredible, beautiful, vibrant, mixed race community. And, Whenever I visit her there, I, I get this throwback to my childhood. I grew up in low-income housing in, in Colorado. And the thing that you forget, or at least I, I forget, about these, these environments of low-income communities that are diverse, many of them are, are migrants, and many of them are you know, recent refugees or you know, otherwise you know, compromised socioeconomic disparaged groups from around the world moving in they express their culture still and they have unique cultures and the richness of that can't be overstated. And you walk through my daughter's neighborhood and on every you know, corner, if not a couple of times before you even get to the corner, there's boom boxes, which I haven't seen since I was you know, a kid, boom boxes playing the traditional music of their culture and they're dancing. And there's like multi-generations dancing and lit talking and smoking and drinking and just having a social environment around the music and vibration of their culture. And you walk down the streets of Santa Monica or something like that. There's no, no visible culture. It's just Lululemon and you know, the, the whole culture. It's just a not, as like, that's a newer, right? I mean, you have to say that like consumerism is a culture. It is a culture. It is a culture. Your your correction is important there. I guess the the question is, is there a spiritual underpinning to it? Yeah. Like what are the roots of the culture? But it is a way of, you know, yoga pants are a way of being. That's super interesting. Whether we agree with it or not. Like, yeah, I've never asked myself, is there differences 
between culture and behavior. Because mm, you know, yeah. down Santa Monica, what you're getting is a behavioral programming through consumer mindset. You can see that as a culture, but it's, a, it's definitely an environment and that environment is definitely going to program you. But is it actually a culture? And I, I would need to look up the word, the definition of culture to get at this more deeply, I suppose. But my vibration sense is the word culture is describing the spiritual sense of place. And when you go to Santa Monica, you don't know if you're in Santa Monica because it looks damn similar to 32 other strip malls or you know outdoor walking malls around the country. We're losing the rooting to place because of our consumer culture, if you will call that, or consumer environment, we're losing sense of place. And if we lose sense of place, do we actually have culture? That's an interesting, you know, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know, know there, but I, I feel a real danger in calling consumerism a culture. If it is, it's going to leave us wanting, which is maybe its design. And it will never leave us feeling fulfilled and it will never leave us feeling safe. It will never leave us feeling seen, heard. It's never going to leave us feeling human. We're going to feel like a piece of machine in the end. I think if, if we let, let the consumerism define itself as a culture, I think that uh, when you walk through these neighborhoods of, you know, and it, it harkens to your experience of going to a South American country right now or going to Italy or going to, to anywhere in these really, you know, established economies in Europe, they still have their culture intact. They still have a sense of place. It's starting to be diminished. Certainly the streets of Paris, I think, are nowhere near where Paris was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's starting to get whitewashed with the same Louis Vuitton and, you know, the same consumerism that's replacing culture and sense of place. But nonetheless, they've certainly done a better job than the United States has in knowing that. And that's, you know, a large part just due to our youth. We're such a nascent country, a couple hundred years old. We, we barely even register on the Europeans' timeline, you know. It's just, and then you go into the Middle East and it's completely different. You know, I, I look at the, the Persian, you know, mindset in Iran and, you know, there's lots of memos that have come out, you know, been leaked from Iranian leadership and all of that and others around that area, North Africa being another good example, Morocco. And the, the sentiment is ignore the United States right now or, you know, don't take them seriously because they can't see the future like we can. They don't know patience. We just need to wait and they're going to kill themselves. We don't need to fight the Americans. They're, they're going to destroy themselves. And, you know, the, don't worry about the international treaties in 10 years. There'll be a different president and they will have forgotten about the current situation. Anyways, they, they see the micro attention span mm -hmm. of Americans, both at the political level and the social level, and they're not threatened. Chinese yeah. being the best example the Chinese are a patient nation. You know, they're happy to wait another couple hundred years for their dynasty to stabilize and you know, their, their government to move forward and take over the, you know, whatever resources they need globally. They've been very patiently, you know, buying up all of the resources of the world over the last 40 years quietly. And they own most of Africa. They own most of South America. Any mineral, water rights, anything else globally, it's probably owned by China. And they've been doing that consistently. They've been buying up the world. And it's because they have this long ball, you know, patience to the way in which, you know, and so they're not, you know, pounding their chest on every CNN wavelength in every single airport in the world because they've got a strategy that's very, very long. <laughs> and I think that's what Iran has. It's what you know, the Persian Empire dates back thousands of years. And, and they remember what built those empires. It was temperance and it was, it was slowness. 
to the pace and, and to the possibility of, of empire building. And so when you look at the battles of empires, patience is a virtue. And the United States is so short-lived, you know, rise and fall. You know, Rome, 400, 500 years of the Roman Empire. Ultimately, the United States didn't really rise to empirehood until sometime after World War II. And it looks like we're not going to survive another 20 years as an empire. And so we were less than, than 80 years as a, as a real empire on the planet. And we were a flash in the pan because of our short-sightedness and because of our egocentrism, this kind of race bias that's built into us is this manifest destiny that built our country that believed that we were better than indigenous peoples and coming from the white Western European world, we must be more advanced. And so that manifest destiny kind of religious and charged mindset was so destructive and so tragic in its outcomes but would ultimately be the demise of our nation and our empire as it played itself out to its short-sightedness and its abuse of wisdom within its borders. Well, I think we sort of in many ways have a rotten foundation because of that. Yeah. So as we kind of bring our time to a close here, I am curious from sort of a healthcare, like true healthcare, right? So, okay, in our country, we have a disease care model, but I'm talking actually about health. So from a healthcare perspective, we just talked about empires rising and falling and the patience of building an empire. How does our collective human health and also our, the collective health of the planet connect to even the mentality of building an empire? And like, what do you see as the dangers of thinking in terms of empires to begin with and what might be a new way that we could think about it Hmm. as humans so that we can, who knows if we're going to make it through the, right. I mean, like who even knows? We don't know, know, but, and maybe that's not even the goal, but like, let's pretend that our goal is to continue human life and the rest of life on earth. So how can we do that in the context of our current mentality about empires and what might we need to change from a health perspective? Yeah. The reason why these two are intertwined, because some people might think that sounds like two completely different topics. You're talking about an empire survival or building versus healthcare. The reason why they're so intertwined today is because our healthcare budget is now $3.7 trillion a year, which is you know around six times more than our entire military budget. And so the U.S. military is the most expensive military complex ever made in history. We're at $680 billion a year. You have to multiply that by five before you get to the level of you know cost of our current disease epidemic that we're trying to maintain. And so it is the thing that will topple the financial you know, security of our empire. It's not the cost of military. It's not the cost of, you know, protecting borders. It's not any of that that leads to the collapse of an empire. It's the lack of productivity and the the increased cost of maintaining chronic disease that comes out of that chronic disease burden that will cripple our nation and already has. And we're just kicking the can down the road. We just infused trillions of dollars literally into the healthcare system through this COVID thing on purpose, we needed something of this scale to justify printing $3 trillion to infuse into the healthcare system, which we gave them, which is interesting, right? There was no even effort to like sugarcoat it, like, oh, we're going to give grants. No, we literally just gave no, half a trillion dollars to the pharmaceutical. Medical practices just like got money mysteriously. 
<laughs> like there, they didn't have to sign up for it. Like there were just, they were like, there was just this money. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And it's selective. And so you had to be within, you had to be associated with a hospital system to get that pay, that check. So if you're a clinic associated with a hospital system, which all of the integrative medicine clinics are not typically. And right. so there was a selective way to reinforce pharmaceutical downstream, you know, management with that, you know, half a trillion dollar infusion to the pharmaceutical companies and another half trillion to the industry at large. So, you know, you get that trillion dollars downloaded into the system in six month period, less than really three month period. Why did we do that? Well, because we had to, because we have a collapsing healthcare system and it's collapsing faster now because Trump rolled back the Affordable Care Act, which was again, forcing everybody to have insurance. One of the things that you'll hear from the liberal media and liberal mindset, which I include myself in, is my goodness, like we need healthcare access. And so isn't it healthcare access that's making these outcomes really bad for African-Americans? And I would argue not at all, because those that are seeing the highest rates of devastation from something like COVID are those that are already on Medicaid. So we have a catchment system called Medicaid and you know, Medicare for the elderly in this case of COVID that are actually very easily covered. And so when we talk about uninsured and poor access, you're actually talking about middle-aged to young middle-class people that are uninsured. That's the majority of the uninsured. Below the poverty line, you're easy to get on a Medicaid, Medicare. Medicare's automatic, you know, regardless, but you get on there and you're going to have access. Now, is it the best access? There's lots of things like that. But the fact is you have access to healthcare. As you pointed out, it's disease care. So you have disease management access if you're poor. If you're not poor and you fall in that kind of loop between you don't have, you know, an employer providing your health care, but you make too much for Medicaid, three times I've been uninsured in my life. And it's always because I was falling between that little threshold in the lower middle class. And yeah, and so we're the ones that are uninsured. And so when people say, oh, we need universal health care because the poor African-American communities don't have access, they're actually lying. (laughs) They're actually creating an appearance again that's not reflective of the reality. And if we keep buying into that common narrative, I think that's the most disgusting version of white privilege is pretend like you're advocating for a minority when in fact you're acting in the interest of of the white minority. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so this is the the most, I think, dismal version of this white privilege is I see this happening at all levels. And I think one of the most sad versions of this is when somebody's able to click on a, a Black Lives Matter link and think that they have somehow risen to some sort of higher vibration of, of moral code because they, they clicked like on an, a Black Lives Matter post. I think it's very clear that if we're going to create the new paradigm of health or nation state building, we're going to do it on the fundamentals of integrity and human respect and then use biology as our template for the patient master. Biology, planet Earth, and health have developed together. Humanity is the result of health within biology on planet Earth. The health that emerged after the last great extinction of the dinosaurs took millions and millions of years to develop. You know, you're 50 million years to develop the, the foundation that would allow you know, our jump to mammals just 200,000 years ago. Or not mammals, but humans. And so you're going millions and millions of years before our mammals show up. And then you're going another millions and millions of years before humans show up. And so you've got this really long patient build of intelligence and design of health. And it's metric, it's designed, it's templated for us in 
the palm leaves behind me. There's math back there in those leaves that predict the vibration of my body. If my body is not exposed to leaves and their interaction with sunlight, I start to lose neurochemistry programming. I start to lose my fundamental connection with nature. And so if I surround myself with air-conditioned tenement housing and never go outside, I have divorced myself from health. And so in the end, how do we solve for this disparity? We need to make healthcare about being in nature. And as soon as we use nature as a template, her slow process, her slow patient development of what we would call health is sitting there free access to anybody. It is literally free if you allow it to become present in your consciousness. You know, and when I say free, I recognize that some people feel like they're in the inner city and can't get out to a park or can't get this or there. I think all it takes is a mindset shift to achieve the reintegration. And so I you know, raised my kids in, in a, a black Baptist church in Southern Virginia for years. And that community was the, mostly over the age of 60, you know, 60 to 80 were the average ages of, in our church. My kids were like a phenomenal, you know, non sequitur, you know, in, in the church just by age. And I was too. And you come into that environment and I would watch that group of what you think, oh, elderly African-American minority in rural Virginia, which is inherently, you know, a racist environment, you know, all the cards are stacked against them. That community was the most intact and functional community I've ever been a part of. If they saw a problem, they would set their mind to it as a community and solve for it. And they would move towards a solution. They would help each other out their children getting, you know, falling back into a prison pattern, prayer groups, food groups, they know how to mobilize as a community still. And you go into Santa Monica and the amount of depression and anxiety disorders, and it pales in comparison to the, the resilience of community and the health of community in these, you know, African-American rural environments. And so I want to emphasize that because there's this mindset, which is, again, a white privilege mindset that, oh, these poor African-American communities, they don't yeah, have access. Saviorism. It's the saviorism behavior. No, they have. You go into my daughter's neighborhood in New York again, they are showing you right in front of you that they are a healthier community than your white privileged group over there are. And if we go and export our version of health on them, by universal health care and say, all of you need to be on blood pressure medicines and statin drugs because you're at risk for, we're going to kill them all. We're literally going to kill them all. And so we need to realize that health is something that predated any healthcare system. <laughs> health is inherent to <laughs> the quality of being born. And the quality of being born is the result of being in a patient nature that is willing to go through extinction events and take millions and millions of years to redevelop an intelligent and biodiverse life on the planet. And in her patience, she shows her mercy and her grace. And she always shows that she heals faster than we can hurt her. And I'm amazed by that. And so if you need a silver lining at the end of another dismally depressing talk with Zach, silver lining is that mother nature is right at our threshold. She's right outside. And if you can't get to the park, there is still air out there to be breathed. It may be down by the river. It may be somewhere, you know, a walk away, but you need to get out in a park. You need to get close to a tree. You need to just touch a tree. In every street in New York, in every street of Maine, in every street of the world, there is a tree. I know that I have a long ways to going to being an alive and woken soul because I walk by so many trees and don't say thank you. You can't imagine the gratitude that we should have towards a tree. 
because it is so life-giving and it is so rooted in the biodiversity of her soils. And it's the connection between the air and the soil system at large. It is the, the lungs of the planet. And it's not by accident that the pulmonary system of our lungs is the exact inverse of a tree. The trunk is our trachea and the branching system of our airways looks identical to you know, these beautiful trees around us. And so the respiratory system of the planet is always designed like a tree. And so whether you're looking at human or looking at the planet. And so I want you to start to think about health and health sovereignty and health independence as one as close to the nearest tree. And as close as that nearest tree is your opportunity to start to reintegrate your community back into a grounded sense of health and identity. And open to what is good for one community is, is not necessarily good for another community. Yeah. Right. Just looking at that, that's yeah. interesting. Like, and, and so as I'm building this impact investment fund for regenerative systems, we're really focused on that. Like, how do we, if we're going to mobilize billions of dollars towards a new regenerative future, how do we actually design the economics of that? And it's important that, you know, one of the breakthroughs that we've had is understanding the importance of place in the emergence of technology and, and development. And so the idea that we have is instead of funding, you know, you find a new innovation that's really important for a regenerative system, whether it be regenerative agriculture, regenerative education, whatever it is, find that in, you've now got an innovative group typically, not typically an individual, but you might have five or six people that came up with this innovation. Right now, all of the economics is let's swoop in, pour billions of dollars in that and turn that into a global phenomenon and let's create a monopoly or at least like, you know, this one fix for everybody. The new idea that we're having is that's never how biology has worked. Biology wants to do horizontal gene transfer. I don't remember if we talked about that in your first, uh, you know, interview or not. But I've heard you talk about it elsewhere. Yeah. And so biology, as soon as it finds a new important niche, it passes that information on through viruses and through horizontal gene transfer to get that new information or that new advantageous feature translated through lots of different species in lots of different locations. A virus is literally designed to take new, important, adaptive information great distances and seed it to other species. And so that's a fascinating template for where our future economy needs to look like. Our future economy should look like the virome. It should look like as soon as we find something that's working, a new, you know, you hear these, you know, features in these laboratories that you're trying to do these, you know, functional improvements in viruses and stuff like this. And and so when a species finds a, a, an adaptive advantage, it creates a virus to take that information out to the world to say, hey, here's an advantage, see if this works for you. And so now as we mobilize economics in the same way, when we find an innovation, those innovators become seeds to other companies in, in 40 other locales. And instead of owning the company, they become a stakeholder in the company, educate the local leadership team that they put around that topic, and then let the leadership team inform that technology by local culture, local ecosystems, local things, and then you invest in that. And I believe that you will make much more wealth for the the seed company people when they are part of 40 other companies that are diversified in other ecosystems and other cultures, rather than trying to take an American solution and make it fit everywhere, that is always going to cause harm in the end because you're disrupting natural balance of complex ecosystems in these other environments. So this is one of the ways in which, you know, as a group, we're trying to solve for this problem. How do we create something that's not an empire? Yes. Creates great economic wealth. And yes. how do we then create a biodiverse umfeld around each technology that comes out? And the answer is going to be micro all the time. 
the identity of nature is not monolithic, as you described, you know, African-American community is not monolithic. It's a tapestry. It's a beautiful tapestry of perspectives and, you know, beliefs and experiences. And so if we allow economics to follow that model through microloans and through microdevelopment and always a distributed supply chain and always a distributed, you know, production system, then we solve for the whole thing. We don't need any more empires if we do that economically. We can have a human society. Thank you for bringing it back around to that. I feel like in a way the world kind of worked that way until you started trading money, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you start getting into the hedge funds, you know, when you really start looking at why so many companies go under, it's not because they're doing a bad job, right? It's this old pattern or this old pair. It's like how we got to this place. It's because of like a hedge fund came in, bought the company, scrapped everything, I mean, look at GE is a great example right now of like a big corporate company that used to make a lot of things and then they went into the money game and then they got crushed and now they're, you know, it's, they're struggling, you know, at the point to survive. So, but yeah, it's a really, I think it's learning from where we used to be, where we create, we created this United States empire over the last 80 years, like you described, Zach. It was backed a lot by consumerism. Sorry to all the Santa Monica listeners. I know Zach, <laughs> he is hitting you hard today. I, um, I have love for Santa Monica. I like Santa Monica. <laughs> but I uh, understand what you're saying. Yeah, I'm following. You could take Santa Monica, go to San Francisco. You could take, you know, whatever. But it's like, how do we learn what our biggest failures have been during this time? And I think with the business side or the economic side is very similar to what you, how you described healthcare, you know, the healthcare system. I just wanted to ask if people wanted to, is there a place that they can be part of donating, contributing, spreading the word around the regenerative growing systems that you're working with right now with Eric Cutter, et cetera? Yeah. So just my website, ZachBushMD.com. These things are going to become available to the public through that website over the next uh, couple months. And so if you want to sign up for the newsletter on ZachBushMD, we'll keep you up to date as to the progress. We're creating multiple funds. And so one is a philanthropic fund that will be scaling for that COVID solution. It's called the Next Pandemic Fund and uh, working on launching that. And so a great group of people out of New York, Pennsylvania, Vermont, um, working on that project, LA as well. And so really starting to, to, you know, prepare to mobilize large capital to really change the public dialogue on immunity and and what does it look like to have community level immunity? You know, how do we build resilient communities rather than just resilient individuals? And so we'll do that through a multifaceted system, but we'll also change the dialogue around innate versus adaptive immunity. There's a belief that antibodies protect you from viruses. Antibodies are not involved in the protection against viruses. They're a very late feature in the development of viruses and our balance with them. It's the innate immune system that has all the responsibility there. And it's the innate immune system that's really failing when you disconnect from food and sun and everything else. It's the innate immune system that I think struggles the most. And the toxicity, so Roundup and glyphosate and herbicides, pesticides and other toxins in our environment, they poison the innate immune system more than they do the adaptive immune system. So there's lots of opportunity for us to change the dialogue so that we're not waiting for some vaccine that actually can't get at the root cause. This is very much like defund the police. It's like if you're waiting for a, a vaccine to induce an antibody, you're way, way down the pike of, of disease. Like it's too late. Like if you have symptoms and you have a vaccine, you can't create health out of that scenario. 
And so desperately need this upstream thing. So next pandemic fund, ZachBushMD.com, you can find out more about that as it comes out in the next couple months. And then the, the big regen fund is going to be a couple phases. Initially, it's only accredited investors that can invest because of SEC rules around that big impact regenerative systems fund. But we are working on a crowdfunding system that would be a phase two or phase three within the fund that would come out sometime 2021. It's really exciting because we see, you know, the, the people that are leading these funds are some of the most extraordinary leaders in, in impact investing and the like around the country over the last few decades. And they've all, instead of, you know, taking their golden parachute from their companies they've been running for 30 years, their funds and everything else, they're stepping into this opportunity to lead from a heart-centered space to do what they feel like is the most important work on the planet left, which is to save the species and the planet from our own behavior through this realignment with nature into a regenerative future. And so it's exciting to see people of all, you know, levels of skill set and experience being drawn to this opportunity to change the public dialogue and, and the trajectory of humanity here. So regenerative systems there, the nonprofit Farmer's Footprint was the first project to start to roll this stuff out. But our larger nonprofit rolls out in the next couple of weeks as well. And so uh, again, ZachBushMD.com can get you into that space as we launch that new one. I'll, I'll keep you up to date. But if you're on the Farmer's Footprint newsletter or mailing system, you'll also see it. But you can follow us on Instagram at Farmer's Footprint or at ZachBushMD on Instagram. And we'll be giving you public updates through those avenues as well as, as these new programs come online. And it's phenomenally exciting because we're adapting the same biologic you know, systems model for our thinking. There isn't going to be no more you know, fund managers as was traditionally. We're looking at cooperative systems for funds to start to work cooperatively together as much as you know, fund managers within a single fund to work cooperatively together with, with broader voices. And so it's been very important that we haven't brought the agricultural mindset to these funds. We've brought large sociology, large economics, large banking policy thought process into these things early to say, where are these things going to be in five, 10 years? Because ultimately, you know, Mike, you're right that the problems emerge not when we can develop monopolies, but when we develop a fiat currency that was not backed by anything. And so in fiat currencies, we corrupted a system that allowed for currency to become a commodity in and of itself. And we could make money off of money, mm -hmm. uh, whether we did that through the banking system or something as bizarrely abstract as the stock market. So now we're producing money out of nothing. And that's where the real you know, corruption occurs of the system and of humans <laughs> and our behavior and our greed and everything else. But by tying that back, and so that's, that's a phase three, phase four is let's redesign the currency itself. And so once we're, we're starting to move large, you know, billion dollar capital levels in the regenerative spaces, it allows us to make a leap to a new currency and get away from fiat currencies as a way of communicating together and get back towards a true value system, a true, you know, uh, value backed barter system to transact the future. Thank you so much. Thanks. This has been illuminating. Thanks for the opportunity for the continued conversation. You guys are insightful. Thank you for the audience bringing questions forward. Thank you for your, your many umfelts that are out there. I appreciate all your perspectives. They're rich. Thank you. What if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were doing the right thing at the right time in your business? For 28 days, I'm hosting a free experience called Right Thing, Right 
time. And during it, you will do a simple, incredible data tracking practice that is going to help you align your business and your productivity and workflow with the innate intelligence of your body and nature to get into peak flow so you can kick indecision to the curb, work less, and get better results. You can learn all about it and join us over at katenorthrup.com forward slash R-T-R-T. Again, it's a 28-day free experience called Right Thing, Right Time, and you can join us at katenorthrop.com forward slash R-T-R-T.